Hi, it's Erin. I'm your regular co-host of First Bite. First of all, I want to thank y'all so much for tuning and listening to First Bite. We've been incredibly encouraged and excited by the feedback we've received and are looking forward to the future. In the meantime, if you've been enjoying First Bite, please take a moment, maybe pause your device to subscribe, leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you're listening. This podcast started out as a small idea to bring convenient, tangible resources to SLPs and other professionals, and we value your feedback more than anything. Leaving those reviews truly helps us out. Enjoy the episode, and thanks for listening. Hey, Erin, have you heard that we have a promotional code for SpeechTherapyPD.com? I think I heard the same thing. Yes. So <laughs> as if we both hadn't heard that. <laughs> but um, it's first bite. So if you log on to speechtherapypd.com and enter the promotional code first bite, it takes $10 off an annual subscription. And Aaron, do that you want to? includes all the pod courses. Yes. And we have four now. I'm not sure if y'all knew that. We have four. We have first we have bite. Yeah, we do. It's speech uncensored. Um, and in case y'all haven't heard of this lovely lady, she focuses on adults. And I know that there's a fair few of you out there that PRN impedes and or PRN in adults. So be sure to check out Speech Uncensored. And it also includes the speech link and the SLP Now podcast with Miss Marisha, who I like fangirl crush. She's <laughs> awesome. <laughs> okay. All right. So promo code is first bite. Whoop. Whoop. And don't let it autocorrect you to B-Y-T-E because it does it did that to me a couple times. So Woo-hoo. there it is. Woohoo! <laughs> Hi folks, and welcome to First Bite. Fed, fun, functional resources for the pediatric clinician. I am your host on this nerd venture, Michelle Dawson, MSCCC SLP, the All Things Peds SLP. I am a colleague in the trenches of home health early intervention, right there with you. I run my own private practice, Heartwood Speech Therapy, in Cola Town, South Carolina, and guest lecture nationwide on best practices for early intervention for the medically fragile child. First Bite's mission is short and sweet, to bring light and hope to the world for the pediatric clinician, parent, or advocate. In this podcast, we cover everything from AAC to breastfeeding, best practice for running a private practice, and all the nitty-gritty details involving feeding and swallowing by interviewing the subject matter experts themselves. We bring the data to you. Every fourth episode, I am joined by the lovely Erin Forward, MSP, CF, SLP, a Yankee transplant who actually inspired this journey and who also walks the wild, woolly, and sometimes sticky walk of early intervention with us. Sit back, relax, and watch out for all the squirrels and enjoy this geeky gig brought to you by SpeechTherapyPD.com. Tonight's guest is the one and only Sherry Fraker, MSCCC SLP, CLC, the guru behind food chaining, the proven six-step plan to stop picky eating, solve feeding problems, and expand your child's diet. 
Okay. So if you haven't heard of that book, then stop what you're doing unless you're driving, Um, but at least keep listening. But if you're not driving, then definitely stop scrolling on your phone and go check it out on Amazon. This is the book that I have lovingly referred to in prior episodes and in like every single one of my live lectures as the Peds Dysphagia SLP Bible. And again, apologies for the little bit of blasphemy. So... Let me tell you how much this book and this lady who I am like seriously fangirling and like blushing because I'm getting to talk to her, but she changed my stars. I came across this book several years ago when I first moved to South Carolina and started working primarily in peds. I needed resources as peds dysphagia and feeding. Well, they weren't covered in my grad program because I'm old. So lo and behold, I found this book. It was awesome. And then a few months after my sweet goose, Danger Dawson, was born, the food chaining ladies came to Skisha for a special Saturday AM short course at our annual convention. So I pumped, I nursed, I pumped again, I did all the things a new mama has to do to make a trip across the state to see them without that new mama inevitable explosion. And I made it. So I sat in the very back of their pack 250 sold out conference room. And somebody in the audience asked, when do you use chewy tubes or Z-Vibes? Sherry simply answered, food isn't plastic and it doesn't vibrate. So let me tell you what, the good Southern Baptist in the back of the room, I jumped up. I started clapping because I was raised when the spirit moves you, you move. And they were preaching SLP gospel at like the front of the room. And I was also the only one that apparently had that lecture instilled in them at a tiny age. So I quickly sat back down in my chair and um, stayed there for the remainder of the morning. And uh, as soon as the class was done, I had them sign my copy of the book. So I am uh, seriously starstruck right now and um, can't help but be the awkward turtle. And I get to introduce Sherry Fraker. So hello, Sherry. And thank you for being here. Yay! (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for that. Oh, my goodness. I'm just overwhelmed by that (laughs) introduction and those stories of when I say things out loud during (laughs) conferences without my filter on. (laughs) So thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, you're in good company. I lost my filter if I was ever born with one. So it's all good. (laughs) Right. Oh, my stars. Okay, so I have to get the backstory. What in the world led you to creating this book and how did you get here? And I know this isn't like one of our pre-planned questions, but I just general curiosity. How did this come to be? Well, my training actually was my son, Luke. And, you know, at every conference I talk about my baby started vomiting at eight months up to 50 times an hour for two days straight and almost died of hypovolemic shock when he was two. Um, And we would have these repeat horrible vomiting days that just came out of nowhere And Luke would say, Mommy, the monster's coming. And I would say, I know, baby, the monster's coming. I know it's coming, too. And it took us six years to get answers. And then we found out he had cyclic vomiting syndrome. And with good management, we weren't in the hospital every 
you know, few weeks. I wasn't being written up at work because I was absent when my child was in the hospital. I was that mom and my husband was that dad searching for answers. When we found intelligent, wonderful people to learn from, I told all of them, I'll work with you forever for the rest of my life if you teach me everything you know about this. And going through what we went through with Luke really lit a passion in me to help other parents. So that's my mom sitting in the chair in the therapy rooms when people are telling their story to me. I tell them I've been there, too. Hmm. Um, in treating, I worked at the hospital. I worked with the GI that diagnosed Luke. I worked with a dietitian that took care of him, the OT that took care of him, the dentist that took care of him, the psychologist, everyone, because we had so much anxiety and we were wired for fear. I was wired for fear for him getting sick. He was wired for fear when it happened. And it was hard for a kid who has vomited, an estimated in his life, 75,000 times. Oh, my gosh. Is the estimate. Luke was one of the most severe. He's 26 years old now. God is good. He is fine. But yeah. it, it's vomiting that is completely different from a child having the stomach flu. So I learned from all those people. I started working with them and my passion to build a team and and have it all in one place was really just that's been lifelong since then. But then I worked with a child who was 11 years old and all he had had from 18 months of age to 11 was peanut butter, white bread and cake, um, a few other breads. And his answer to everything when asked, you know, would you eat this? Would you eat this? Was always, no, thank you. No, thank you. No, thank you. And he was polite, uh, though. He had good he manners. Was so polite. <laughs> he, was he was completely polite, but absolutely terrified. Completely unskilled eater. Obese from drinking tremendous amounts of milk. Undernourished. And I started um, talking to him about what he wanted to learn to eat. And he wanted to learn to eat pizza. And his brothers were in college. He was very important to him. He didn't know how to hold it. He didn't know how to bite it. Um, and I just said, taste the sauce. So he tasted the sauce and, and with his finger and his hands were shaking. And he came back the next week and he said, I put my finger in spaghetti sauce. And he said, Sherry, do you know that pizza sauce and spaghetti sauce kind of taste the same? And I was like, uh-huh. And, and he did it. And I'm like, well, there's a link between those two. There's a chain between those two. And I said, well, what if we did things with your peanut butter and we put it with other things? Or we tried different kinds of bread. And I said, on a scale from one to ten, you know, how did that taste? And and he said the pizza was a four. And, you know, we wrote it down. And then he came in the next week and we started doing things. And we'd say, on that scale from one to ten. And I saw those numbers go up. And then I started linking things. And it's like the heavens opened and God just this whole idea came in my mind of chaining. And the relationship between the foods, because I had a kid who had never learned to eat, only knew how to eat that peanut butter white bread. His motor planning for eating was so off. And so that's, he was like the father of food chaining. And I dedicated the food chaining book to him. And within a year, he was eating food, some all food groups, eating with comfort, eating with joy. Um, 
he's now majored in German and he can travel around the world and eat food. Um, he's married, he's happy, he's healthy. And we started using the same approach with different kids. But I kept saying this thing I'm doing, you know, it's working. And it just came from there with the, the wonderful minds and the people around me. And we just keep adding to the program to build food chaining. And then again, pre-chaining, we started that as well. So that's yeah. how it started. <laughs> Close to home. Close to home. Yes. And I, I totally appreciate that age difference and wanting to eat what the big brothers are eating because I'm on the that's upper end. Issue. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's, I mean, I'm the oldest of, of five, but there's 12 years between my youngest sister and I, and that's well, hard. I, right. And I told him, I said, Elliot, you're 11. I've got to think of you going to prom. I've got to think of you getting married. I've got to think of you as a person in the business world. You have to be able to eat and, and enjoy eating. And this is just not a healthy way of eating and, and not a healthy way of just living. So yeah. He was really released from those chains. They were chains of anxiety and fear. So, mm. Mm. Um, well, um, I am, I am, I don't know how to phrase this. I'm sad that Elliot had to go through that, but at the same time, like his walk has impacted so many people. So, Absolutely. so Elliot, if you're out there, cheers. Thank you, my man. Thank you for letting us share this story. Also, German and traveling, please tell me you've been to Oktoberfest once or twice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's the best. He, he is the best. I just adore him. And, you know, food chaining became something I shared with you earlier. I'm now using with head and neck cancer patients. Yes. I'm using with oncology patients where it is, it's just tools that you can use whatever age and that's really the the thing I enjoy the most about it because each person's treatment is a snowflake it is custom built to each person we're not a protocol we're not program we're we're literally an individualized eating profile and just building building that nourishing that person uh, body and soul and mind about eating because if you can't, it is a horrible thing to carry around. So it's it's wonderful when you can bring that back to someone or when you can build it in a little person. So I, I've, I've been doing it 34 years now and I still love what I do. So the, I, 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 after I read your book and after I saw y'all live, the very first um, food that we food chained, I had a little guy years ago that the only thing he would willingly eat was hard, crunchy, cheesy poofs dipped in McDonald's sweet and sour sauce. He lived off of those. And, (laughs) and I was, I always, whatever the babies ate, I broke bread with them and I would, I would sit right alongside. They'd had their plate. I have my plate. I never want to eat another McDonald's sweet and sour sauce ever again, but we managed to food chain that out to carrot sticks. And for the life of me, I still don't know how I managed to do that, but like, 
<laughs> carrot sticks dipped in McDonald's sweet and sour sauce is still not that much better. And I do worry about my GI tract as I say this, but like, okay. Well, you, you were flavor masking. I, so that's one of our techniques. Yeah, so, but, yeah. but that's... Um, my taste buds have taken one for the team once or twice in your life. Oh my goodness. Okay. All right. So I'll get us back on track, but um, can you describe the difference between pre-chaining and food chaining and kind of um, what all those programs entail? Okay. Um, Pre-chaining is where you try to prevent this awful problem from happening in the first place. So it's being extremely aware of who you're seeing. And we're trying to get infants referred to us immediately, right out of the NICU, as soon as there's a sign of problem. So the pre could be the premature baby that I know developmentally, they are not going to follow the normal first year progression with the development of their feeding skills. So I try to stay as close to that as possible for that child. And we'll talk more about it. Precautionary part of it is if you see, you know, you have a child, an infant who's an aspirator. Um, They have dysphagia. There are significant issues with feeding. You are just not focusing on that problem. You're anticipating how you're going to set up treatment to avoid other problems from starting. So it's precautionary care, preventative. And then the child that maybe is older and has the extremely limited severe selectivity, um, you're trying to prepare them for food chaining. Their diet is so limited. Their exposure is so limited. You can go in and fill in the holes in their oral sensory motor feeding skill development. Their library of skills is really limited to kind of eating like Pac-Man. I can munch down a cracker, uh, but don't ask me to choose something complex. Mm-hmm. So with those kind of different phases of pre-chaining, you know, child with cerebral palsy, your <laughs> building skills, we try to treat everything. If they're tube-fed, We're going to do blended feeds. We're going to keep everything as close to typical as possible. If they're a baby, we're going to give them tastes of breast milk and formula, maybe two cc's that they swallow as we rehabilitate that that swallow for liquid. We keep them in the ballpark with taste and oral motor with sucking on a pacifier. Um, When they're older at six months, we're going to give them tiny little tastes of baby food, just flavor their saliva. We're going to keep them in that realm, not just avoiding everything, because that that's a guarantee of feeding aversion in yeah. the future. Um, we get everybody involved, PT, OT. You know, if you have a preemie and they're not breathing well and deep, they're not going to eat until they can breathe. So we treat that. Um, it's like the five steps before you food chain, all the health, all the medical, nutritional, swallowing, sensory. But we're trying to expose them on purpose and just follow that progression as much as we can or rehabilitate the swallow. So I think pre-chaining is one of the most powerful things that we have in our, our treatment that we do. And I love to see it as part of NICUs everywhere as how to avoid these horrible problems. Now you contrast that to food chaining, and then you have the child with selective eating. And we start with the whole medical assessment. We go back to infancy. We hear the story of how they ate. We figure out the patterns and what happened to them. 
Um, we do all of our assessments. We get our team activated. Then we study the food that they eat. We study the patterns in the food they eat, the relationships between the foods. You know, what is the similarity? We map all that out, all their flavors, all their textures, what works, what doesn't. And then we start building from that small group. I always ask, what are the five favorites? If they, if they have five foods, what are the five favorite foods the child has? And then I tell that child, I am going to pick five other foods that are close cousins to what you already eat. And I want us to learn and how to taste, how to smell them, touch them, all those things. And I want to try to make 10 foods that you really, really like. And I tell the kids I want to help them uh, have something new without no. And I want to break that fear because they're so wired for fear, Mm -hmm. so wired. Mm -hmm. I want to build that confidence and trust with me that then I can expand the diet further and further and further. And I just keep modifying foods to make them uh, something the child can have success with right away. And I always tell them, I guarantee you, every plate will have something you love to eat on it. So you can always enjoy when you come here. You're not going to cry here. You're not going to vomit here. You're not going to gag here. Um, oral motor is self-directed. Food is our, our oral motor tool. Wait, um, say that again slowly. <laughs> Folks, listen <laughs> with your ears. Is self-directed oral sensory motor therapy. Okay, so translation. Not a dentist chair. Not a dentist, yes. Not a device. Um, We use a lot of chewy utensils or we cut foods in narrow strips. Um, We help the child learn. They literally do not know how to chew these Mm -hmm. foods. They don't know about how this food scatters across their tongue. And I tell them that and I coach them. And, And you literally have to instruct them because they cannot see it. It's in their mouths. There's, it's behind the veil. There's nothing that they can see about this. Like I can throw a ball and say, do this, you know, these foods are also complex. And so what we try to do with chaining is use those rating scales and use all the tricks I have to make it taste the best, the texture to match what they're searching for. And we try to make food fun over and over and over and over again. And then they're more willing to try more and they expand out. And then we treat all the other things that have been in the way, like reflux and huge adenoids and snoring and all the other health issues that are related to this problem. I um, I had a dear friend and colleague, Dr. Garner, on a few months ago, and he talked all about the importance of the aerodigestive tract. Mm-hmm. And I have pockets in the area where I work where they're like, oh, the baby has laryngomalacia, trachomalacia. They're fine. They'll outgrow it. But yet you can hear the strider when you walk in the room. And I'm like, no, they're not going to outgrow that. Like that, you need a second opinion for. And then, and those are the kids inevitably that are like aspirating thin liquids. And Mm -hmm. then, you know, we get that portion fixed and it's like, bam, they're hungry. They want to eat. It's not as fearful because up until now, you know, they had micro aspirating events or major aspirating events. And I'm glad y'all her, when you read food chaining, there are chapters dedicated to the medical management component. 
And this book was the first book to plant the seed within me that this is not about, um, feeding therapy has to be fun, but until the kid is to a point of healing, they will not be able to take off and meet their, um, their, their true potential. Because if they can't breathe, if their body, their intestines hurt continuously because of undiagnosed EOE, celiac, severe constipation, you're not going to get them to where they can go. So, Yes. Sorry. Huge, big, passionate soapbox squirrel. Oh, and it is, it is so important. And I see so many children that I'll ask them, you know, do you throw up in your mouth and swallow it back down? And they'll be like, yeah, all the time. And the parent at the same time is saying, oh no, they never do that. And this is why they eat their goldfish and they reflux that and they're used to it. Mm -hmm. They eat a new food. They take one bite. They say, oh, that's great. They eat it. Then they reflux it later and they never eat it again. Mm-hmm. It's like vomiting a food. So I tell the parents that's why it's one and done because they have untreated reflux. Mm-hmm. Um, they can have so many challenges with mucus draining down their throat. They don't like noodles because they're slimy. Well, so is that stuff in their throat all the time. Mm-hmm. There's a reason why. You know, it's there aren't simple answers like brown food or, you know, they're just trying to be in control. They don't really love those goldfish crackers and chicken nuggets. They eat what they can. They can munch and get that down and breathe around it by mouth and they can't breathe through their nose. They've learned that I can eat this, but they're not really skilled at it. And it's the one thing that they can handle, the macaroni and cheese that has the powder craft cheese. It's not sticky. It doesn't have heavy cheese. Um, this is why they lick the icing off a cupcake. They can't eat the cake and the icing together because they don't have the skills. So they truly are very, very low skill level if you assign an age to their oral motor and swallowing skills. And they're trying to negotiate how to eat a new food and someone's giving them corn and they're gagging and choking because they don't know how to eat something like that. And I try to interpret that for families. And most of the time, the parents are both teary and the child is just amazed because I'm telling them this is why this has happened to you. Now we know what's going on. We can find our way through it. They're speaking their language. Yeah, absolutely. And the parent will sit there and nod. And I'll say, this is why you couldn't get over this without help because there are so many things that are contributing to this feeding problem that without treating all of them, you won't overcome it. And no one has given you the lens to look through to understand, just like I didn't know what was happening to Luke until that information was given to me. And then once you have the information, their whole attitude about it's different. And families are just released from so much guilt and stress and despair. And uh, it's just incredible the change in people once they have information that they need. Okay. I have, I have three thoughts. Sure. One, it's totally smart, Alec. I love licking the 
icing off cupcakes and then eating the <laughs> cupcake. So, but that's just me because, and, yeah. and my um, son's kindergarten teacher this past year taught him the most amazing trick where you cut the bottom of the cupcake off and put it on the top and you turn it into a cupcake sandwich. It is oh, the perfect nice. ratio <laughs> of cake to icing. So for all of you out there that don't like to bite into it, to have the icing, like go up your nose, there's this amazing place called Cupcakes Down South and the cupcakes are fantastic, but it's just too much icing on top. You can't bite into it without it going up your nostrils, but there's your trick. Cut that and sucker in exactly half. exactly what we do. We yes. simplify it and break it down. And yes. From there, so I'll keep that trick. That's yes. That's, I know, right? Thank you, yeah. super amazing kindergarten I teacher. Do. Okay. So then my next, okay, so technical thought. And I get asked this one a lot. When do you chart it as um, uh, R1312 oral pharyngeal dysphagia or R63-3 feeding aversions? A lot of times it's dysphagia. That's what, okay, that's what I end up going with because they don't have the underlying oral or oral preparatory skills. So I typically code R1312. Okay. So then that being said, on those outliers, and I only have, and I say this because like, I've got one kid on my caseload right now who the only thing we can come up with right now until I get like instrumentals and those kind of things is R63-3 because the physician wrote the script for feeding aversions. So I have like my hands are tied there, but I suspect in truth uh, a pharyngeal esophageal stage impairment. Right. So, and what, even without that, if you auscultate the swallow, you do cervical auscultation of the swallow with your stethoscope on the side of the neck, you can, it's subjective, but you can listen, just like a surgeon auscultates a chest before he does a procedure or a test for heart, we're listening to the timing of the swallow, we're listening to um, the sound of the swallow, is there premature spillage, is the child really not able to coordinate breath with bottles? or cup or straw mm-hmm. are they piecemealing um piecemealing the, into you know four swallows to get a drink down um is it that they don't have good lip seal that they can't lateralize uh, just watching how immature their patterns are and then i always assign an age if they're munching like that and their skills are but it may be a two-year-old child but their skills are at 11 month level then in my documentation i can put medical diagnosis from the physician and then I put therapy diagnosis from myself and I will say child demonstrates signs of dysphagia and I list all the reasons why and the age you know child should have skills at a two-year-old level and do you know the following um should have the skills of a nine-year-old and, and doesn't. And so, and that's the way I get around it. And then I say that the instrumental assessments are needed, the VOS yes. or the, the swallow study or the fees study or um, what we do with our, in our swallowing clinic. So, but that's the way I get at it. And then when I know that they're gagging, choking, and they, they taking food out of their mouth, they cannot eat those more complex foods. They lack the skills. So um, that's where I get into the dysphagia. The aversion and the fear, that's less where it's feeding aversion. And maybe they are just a super taster and they're so sensory and they're so overwhelmed um, that sometimes then the aversion is there. But usually there's an underlying dysphagia. Thank you. I'd say 80% of the kids I see. 
Hey, I'm not sure if you've caught the updates yet, but I have the pleasure, if you haven't seen it already, of announcing the 2020 SpeechTherapyPD.com Conference at Sea. We are going aboard a Royal Caribbean Alaskan cruise departing Vancouver, British Columbia, July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I am thrilled and humbled to be announcing that I will be presenting. I have a a three-hour course, a two-hour course, a one-hour course, and I'm co-presenting another three-hour course. And my co-presentation will be with the one and only Lee Ann Porter of Speech Uncensored, which is Speech Therapy PD's newest adult pod course podcast that just added to our lineup. And Marisha McGordy, the guru behind SLP Now, will also be there. And if you register before September 30th, then you get a free six-month subscription to SLP Now. So again, make sure that you register before September 30th of 2019 for the Speech Therapy PD conference at sea, um, which is July 10th through 17th of 2020. And I cannot wait to see y'all aboard a ship where we're going to see real life bears and like, hopefully we'll get to see Northern Lights. So whoop, whoop, see you at sea. Bye. Because I get asked that a lot and I'm like, but you're, you're missing the oral motor component or the pharyngeal motor component. And I mean, out of, I got 25 kids on my caseload and I only have one that I have not given the R1312 code to. And yeah. I'm willing to bet that that will change as new information comes in because we have some appointments coming up. Done, done, yeah. done. Well, okay. You know yeah. what we love is diagnostic therapy. Yes. That's what you need. That every yes. session, probably six sessions in, you're still doing the diagnostics. Yep. And people will say, well, they can swallow their crackers or they can swallow their McDonald's mm. french fries or they don't have a swallow problem. Well, that dissolves down to nothing, basically. Um, you give them something solid, you'll see the problem. <coughs> so, and yep. we don't want to do that if they don't have the skills yet. But we know there are patterns in what they say yes to and huge patterns in what they say no to. Yep. That's. Um, I had that conversation with a physician today and she was like, you know, we could do X, Y, or Z, but I don't think, you know, I'll send the kid to a feeding clinic and I want the kid to go to a feeding clinic so they can see like the whole team. And, but she was like, I saw the baby eating crackers and they ate crackers fine. So I don't think we need a swallow study. And I was like, and this is, and this is not the moment to say, okay, but I still need an instrumental because I just got the door open to get the kid in the feeding clinic. And like, I know the girls there and like, I know that they will read my report and then immediately refer for a swallow study. But like, I was like, I was like, all right, cool. Thank you so much for the referral. And like, you know, just a little, which is pretty impressive that at 36 years of age, I finally learned to shut up for like Uh a second. Right. (laughs) One victory at a time. That's right. Uh, it is like the comparison where people say, well, the baby can suck on a pacifier. Why can't they take a bottle? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's that same, you know, we don't usually aspirate crackers. It's usually we're aspirating our saliva. We're aspirating secretions that are draining. We're aspirating gastric content. If you give them liquid, the wrong flow rate of the bottle, wrong flow rate of the cup, you'll see that they'll aspirate. So, mm-hmm. yep. 
Totally with you. Okay. So, all right. So then let me move on to the next question. If a child eats snack foods, French fries, and those lovely dinosaur-shaped gluten-free chicken nuggets that my boys love to throw down, um, why can't they just eat the other foods too? And how do we know that this isn't just quote-unquote behavioral? Because I love when I get that on the notes. (laughs) Right. Um, what we do, you know, when I said in chaining, we go back to the beginning. Usually there are problems in the beginning. And we say the onset of this problem was before the age of one year, before the child could choose to be quote unquote behavioral. So the core issues showed themselves the first year of life. Their skills, the foods, when we analyze with food chaining, what's going on with the food, what what patterns are in those foods, we usually see that all those foods are uniform texture. They break down very, very easily. No juice comes out of them. You don't have to park part of it in the side of your cheek and then swallow and go back to it. It's very, very low-level, uniform texture. They are always the same um, kind of foods is what we see. So the child has the very basic bottom level skills. If you and I went to a buffet and we were eating all these different foods, our oral motor plans would change dramatically based on what we were eating. The salad with croutons and the tomato, we would have all kinds of gymnastics to get through that without choking to death. The meat the other foods that we have in the diet um, that we know how to eat and we're very flexible eaters and we can shift our plan very easily. We are skilled eaters and these kids are not. So they are at the basement level of oral motor skills. We've got to build the skills. So the things that they eat, they usually eat those because they can. Like I said, they don't always love eating those. Those are just the foods that are highly reliable. And they have that very basic kind of Pac-Man munching pattern to get them down. So until we teach them how, this is a food, this is what you do. You bite into a peach and some juice comes out. You have to swallow the juice first, and then you have to chew, and then it'll break down. Um, We have to give them, because they didn't have those exposures, we have to give them the motor plants and help them build those motor plants. And once we do, they become very relaxed eaters. They're able to look at a food and tell me, you know, is this a big teeth food? What do we do with this one? You know, how do we bite? I had a little guy yesterday I was telling him, turn the triangle of the pizza towards your mouth. He was trying to ex- explore pizza. He had it upside down. He had no, I mean, he's nine years old. Brilliant. He's been a tube fed kid all of his life. He's just, he's so interested in pizza. Had no idea even how to hold it. So I, I've hard. coached him. Uh, yeah. And I'm like, this is how your friends eat it. The, the, the end of it, the little pointy part points to your nose. <laughs> You know, I had him nibble like a rabbit. And I said, you know, just get a tiny little taste. We're going to do a butterfly size bite today. And he took a little nibble of it. And he's moving his mouth and he's feeling good. And he looked at me and gave me the thumbs up. And and he really liked it. And he just kept going and kept going. And And I told him, I said, you know, you can do as many butterfly bites as you feel like doing here's your drink in between and he just worked on it and worked on it and he actually consumed one of those personal pan pizzas just almost 
up to the crust itself. And he had never done anything like this before. He was eating the crumbs of a donut. He was licking, he was eating bananas that we mashed down. He was eating Outshine, the 100% fruit bars. He mm-hmm. loved those. But this was the first time of something solid. And the kids will tell me it feels like swallowing a rock in my throat. It's so big, I can't breathe around it. And so I showed him animation and and his own swallow study. And I said, you have two places, one where air goes and one where food goes. And he said, so two elevators, right? I'm like, yes, (laughs) two elevators. And I said, and this one is all protected when when you're swallowing and taught him all about it. And he said, so I won't die. And I said, that's Bless, right. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, he he had choked as a baby. His mom had always been afraid. And he was like, you know, what about people where they have to do that thing and get food out of their throat? And so that led to like one conversation after another about the Heimlich maneuver and how we swallow and that, you know, what we're doing is very safe. And he's been carrying around all this anxiety and fear. And so we really talked a lot about you're wired for fear, and this is something you don't have to be afraid of anymore because we've worked on all these other foods, and you've done it, and your swallow study's perfect, and we played it while we were he was eating. And I said, this is more just getting used to how it feels now and how it feels to swallow something bigger. And we've adjusted his tube feeds. I said, your tube feeds were kind of blunting out your desire to eat. Yes. And we're letting your stomach rest at night now and we know how to drink things to have calories in them that aren't always you know um, peptamin jr mm-hmm. and you know there's there's ways that we can learn to eat these foods and feel really safe and and he's getting that confidence but you know i've worked for a very long time to build that mm-hmm. repertoire of foods for him and we had to overcome so many health issues, the, the dysphagia, the aspiration, we had to overcome that sensory. And then the fear, I think, is the one thing we don't appreciate nearly enough in children. Um, mm. How much that daily fear, you know, when, when you don't swallow well all the time, they are really wired for fear. And I want to change that wiring. <coughs> we, yeah. As I, I like cough up a tiny lung in the background. Sorry, um, I'm not not aspirating, folks. Just she's fine. She's fine. Everybody. I'm fine. I'm fine. It's definitely not aspirational Moroccan mint tea. Um, uh, no. Um, what I was going to say is, I, I sometimes feel like we get stuck, and I know I originally started out like this and practiced this way for a very long time as a clinician. I felt like I was a silo. And I felt like if I made a referral or asked for assistance from a team, that it meant that I was failing as a clinician. And, but folks, you have to power through that because she just rattled off a bunch of different etiologies that are outside of our scope that require different specialists to come in. I mean, you have to have radiologists to do the swallow study, GI, airway, ENT, those kind of things. Um, one that we often overlook is honest to goodness, a good psychologist. Oh yes. And, and for some of these kids, and I actually had a mother, um, 
And I had a crucial conversation a couple weeks ago and she did not like my recommendations. Um, the little one had been in and out of foster care and in and out of the hospitals prior to coming to this family member and was completely tube dependent, um, would put food in their mouth and promptly spit it out. And, uh, there was also some, the currently treating therapist that wanted to transfer to me, there was some, um, she had some concerns and I said, okay, so this is the circumstances with which I'm willing to treat your child. I will only treat your child if there is psychology involved in conjunction with, and it was not well received, Sure, but I feel like I was there to explain the gravity of the situation. And when I followed back up with the physician's office, you know, sent the referral and I explained, this is what's going on. These are the signs and symptoms. It's like, I can't treat the, the depth of that anxiety and PTSD and everything that happened that led to this child being tube dependent. You know I mean? That's not me, but I need that in conjunction with, but even our regular quote unquote feeding kiddos, their anxiety. Y'all, we have to explain it and address it. Also, I'm thinking of a video that a mama sent me yesterday where her daughters are honorary SLPs for her little boy. And they were explaining how to eat popcorn. And the kids spontaneously ate a bite of like those, what are the white cheddar 40 cal bags of popcorn? And he ate a bite of popcorn with his sisters yeah. coaching him through. It's not scary. You got this. You're the man. And I was like, <laughs> He's the man. <laughs> I mean, he's five and he's got a little booty belly, but like he's the man. <laughs> yes. Oh, my stars. Okay. All right. So how do you use pre-chaining and food chaining therapy to treat children with true dysphagia? And again, that can be 80 to 92, like 97% of the kiddos. <laughs> right. Well, with infancy, you have to know the flow rate of the bottle that you're using. Now, I use Dr. Brown. They have the go with the flow chart, or I use Britt Pados' scale. Britt is a nurse who's developed a scale of flow rate for, for products. Breast milk flows 7 to 8 ml per minute. So that means if it was in a bottle, the baby should consume 7 to 8 ml in one minute of feeding. There are bottles that flow at 24 at 40, at 16, 12, the ones that look like a breast all flow very, very, very fast. Mm. You want something that stays the same flow rate. I tell moms, if you were nursing your baby, if your baby could have nursed, your breast milk would flow in that range the whole time you breastfed. There are times we have bursts, there are times we have more, but generally breast milk flow stays the same. If they're on a bottle, we want to sell other bottle nipples. So we do go to level two, go to level three, go to this, go to this. And we're changing at six months of age when their tongue is dropping in their mouth, making more space. At exactly the wrong time, we're increasing the flow. So flow is everything. We back it way down. We almost always use standard Dr. Brown preemie or ultra preemie nipple. And we do cool temperature breast milk or formula. And we lather, rinse, repeat. We do that pattern neuronal activity of sucking, swallowing while pacing them, while in a side tilt position, treating their nose, treating their reflux, um, getting their tube feeds going well. And we just do it over and over and over. And we do a series of swallow studies to assess how they're doing. 
Um, when we get to spoon, we're, we're giving them flavor on you chewy utensils like the duo spoon, the tri-chew, things of different sizes and shapes that they can mouth and chew and mimic what other kids are doing with food that has different shapes. Um, we have the spoons, different different sizes, different shapes, letting them taste, letting them explore sensory, and you're treating the dysphagia. If you just stay at the same high flow bottle and you don't treat their nose and you don't <clears throat> pace them and you don't you don't change things up, they can't improve. So with infants, that's what we do. With children, we usually do small diameter straw. Um, we may do sip cup. I hate it when people say no sip cups. Everyone should have an open cup. Everyone no. Should have, yes. You know, sip cups can be the difference between aspiration, no aspiration. Mm -hmm. And I usually use like Think Baby, the soft ones, Nug Nogi, uh, soft spout sip cups. And I'm still working those oral motor patterns, working on lip seal, working on coordination of the swallow. Um, many times we take the kids, we do a swallow study, we see what's going on. Our ENTs look, uh, we talk to them, could there be a laryngeal cleft? Are the adenoids huge? And a child, the pressures for swallowing are decreased because child can't breathe through their nose. They're trying to breathe by mouth around liquid. Is that why they're aspirating? Um, position change, everything. <clears throat> we work on the chewing, biting, swallowing all the way up. And some children are never going to eat orally. They're going to have a tube. With their tube feeds, we're going to make that as close as we can to, to food, not just, you know, pediature, not just a supplement. Um, but we're trying to keep the child on track as much as we can while they can participate and have a taste of the same foods their family's having. Maybe a little bit of spaghetti sauce when they're having spaghetti, maybe some sauce off pizza, uh, soups, just things to give flavor and follow what the rest of the family's having. We don't want the child separated from everyone and tube feed is done away from the table. We want to try to make it as normal and healthy and happy as we can. And we are huge fans of Marsha Dunn-Klein. We love Marsha. We present with Marsha um, in the past about the get permission approach and her blended tube feeds. Um, that's a good resource for people if they haven't okay. checked that out yet. Okay. Um, and one thing just, just to say on there, when she talks about the importance of the tube feeds, um, we children that have, um, constant tube feeds, they are not used to developing hunger cues. And so I always compare it to you go on a cruise and you have the all night buffet or the midnight buffet and then you wake up and then they shuffle you here and they tell you to eat now and they shuffle you here and they tell you to eat now. Well, if you have always been set on a schedule, you never develop the ability to say, no, I don't want to eat right now. I'm full. And so we're just sending your normal satiation levels, um, not just mixed signals, but completely erroneous signals. Right. So blunts out, blunts out appetite. Yeah, it does. And so one thing that um, has brought me um, a lot of, I've had a lot of joy and I've seen a lot of patients be successful with is once they start taking a little bit more by mouth, very quickly work with 
And again, only if they're medically stable, the registered dietitian, GI, or whoever is running point on the tube feeds to see if you can take off a little bit of volume here or there. Um, I've had some kiddos take off like, you know, maybe half or a third of the volume of a bolus feed and that gets tapered down or they take out like one feed in the afternoon or they slowly start lessening the overnight volume. But remember these children have feeding tubes because for the most part, it's a medical etiology. Did they have cardiac conditions? Did they have um, a genetic condition? So uh, don't you run point on that, but work with the medical team. So just, absolutely, yep, just a few thoughts there. And we are <laughs> huge fans of notube.com, the Graz program in Austria. Um, yes. With them, we love their program. We have had kids go through their program in conjunction with uh, their food chaining and pre-chaining. And they um, contacted us and said, we can't believe how well your kids can chew and swallow. And what did you do? And that's where pre-chaining is before kids are ready for that tube weaning. We'd like to get some weight on them. And then Mm -hmm. they cut by half. They cut dramatically, but these kids are supervised so closely. Um, It's amazing what can happen with a wean. But remember that a toddler normally will eat one good meal a day. They don't eat a lot. Their growth really slows down from two to six. And kids on tubes are 100% tube fed. They're 100% nourished. They are going to be tasters. They're not going to eat large portions. And if we think that they will, then parents get frustrated. No one understands what's going on. And the therapists sometimes lose track of that. The kids are full. And they don't know thirst. They don't know hunger. So the signals are not coming through to trigger them to want to eat. Yeah, And we have to keep that in mind. And you mentioned the psychologist before. A lot of it is the psychologist helping all of us, um, helping me do my best work for them, helping us all communicate with each other, helping the child not have that fear. And the brain gut connection here is huge with what we're trying to do to help these kids overcome these issues. Yeah. Mm. Okay. So in four minutes or less, done, 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 because I have to save time for the Q&A because I know there's going to be questions. So I have to be like, I, I, I mean, I want to have you back. Can we have you back? But like, I, I, yay. Okay. Oh my goodness. I'm going to bless you again. Okay. All right. But in four minutes or less, what sets food chaining apart from other therapy programs? Um, I think that it is so individualized to each child. I think it's so medically thorough, completely medically thorough. We get them nourished before we start working on the food. We get all of their ENT appointments, their swallow studies. We gather all that information in those first two steps, and we get them healthy and feeling good. So happy, healthy aerodigestive tract with scheduled meals and snacks and the right foods in front of you. We're stacking the deck in the child's favor for being successful. We're coaching the parent so they know how the language of food chaining, what to say, what not to say. And we give the child ownership. Once the food's in front of them, it belongs to them. The child doesn't have to feel like I'm afraid of this person. And I think we take away fear. 
and I write goals that you will enjoy food. Enjoy is in every goal I write, not endure, enjoy. <laughs> so I think that is one of the biggest things that we do and that our oral sensory motor is oral sensory motor for food, not the dentist chair, not someone poking in your mouth. Um, we make it as normal as we can. And I think we are a team. We truly are a team. It takes a team to do this. And parent is very much one of the major team players. We try to give the parent the gift of all this information. So every meal is therapeutic. And we don't like a life of therapy. We like a therapeutic life. Um, How did I do? That was that, that I was ready to say, oh, my gosh. And now I've got like 14 follow-up questions. Um, <clears throat> one of the biggies, one of the differences that I saw in um, studying this approach versus some of the other approaches that are out there is, um, and there are approaches where the clinician places the food in the patient's mouth, the clinician forces the bite. And um, we have the privilege of having Dr. Toomey on um, a couple of months back. Oh my gosh. She's like, Oh, like, I know. Right. And, and she, she was like, you don't, she, she said, you don't throw the kid in the water to teach them how to swim. And I was like, Ooh, but I definitely learned how to swim that way. (laughs) But But that's what you do. You don't do with feeding. You don't throw the kid in there and shove it down their gullet because you're, you're starting that fear cycle again. But this approach, the food chaining approach is all about letting the kid lead, but we're setting them for success. And um, so that when they do take that first step tiptoeing into the water, they have those pre-chaining fundamentals under their belt. And it's, um, y'all, this really truthfully has helped so very, very many of my patients. Um, And um, I mean, bear could survive on chicken nuggets, but you know what? That baby loves him some smoked salmon on a Sunday morning and, um, which is not a redneck food. That's, that's a Yankee one that I borrowed. Um, (laughs) but I mean, like we, we've gotten there. Um, and he was my preemie that had acid reflux that had a helmet that had all the things. And, um, there it is. Okay. Now, um, before we leave, uh, you've been very candid with me in your walk and how you've used food chaining with your adult patients as well. Right. Um, And let's be honest, many of us listening wear many hats and we also treat adults who have oral pharyngeal dysphagia. And can you briefly um, describe if folks wanted to learn about more about pre-chaining and food chaining, even for adults with geriatrics um, or head and neck cancer or just cancer in general, how do they reach you? Where can they learn more about that? Because that's phenomenal. It is. And I'm a cancer survivor myself. In 2015, I had breast cancer Mm. and God is good. I'm doing fine. Um, But at the same time was being trained to do the oncology rehab. So it's how, you know, I was the patient. Um, I am actually going to record a food chaining oncology course for Northern Speech Services. I've got signed the contract. Uh, People can contact me through Facebook, um, private message me on the food chaining page for sure. 
Um, I have a Pinterest board of 800 pins of food ideas and tube feeding information, and I'm going to be linking all of the oncology. I'm building an oncology (laughs) Pinterest board. Um, It has been phenomenal what I have seen happen with these patients, and this is one of the most exciting um, changes in my career. I was like, oh, my gosh, they're going to ask me to do this? I don't know if I have the skills to do this, and I just started doing what I do, and it worked, and so that's coming next. Um, There's going to be a lot more information about food chaining, oncology chaining, uh, working on the tube feeds for these patients first. You've got to work on the tube issue before you're going Mm -hmm. to get them to be able to eat. Um, It is, uh, it's going to be brand new, (laughs) brand new approach with chaining, but it's the same idea, but a lot of dysphagia work. um, And so that's coming very soon. Going to be working on that this summer. I feel like I want to sweet talk you into doing a um, a blog on food chaining for peds and adults for the um, the people that host this, the speech therapy PD, because I feel like that's going to hit like all the masses. So yeah. maybe, yeah, yeah, all the things. Okay. All right. Well, I have to be um, respectful of our time, but um, I do, I do want to give a quick, lovely shout out. Um Really quick, um, my um, sweet dear friend, Miss Annalisa, and she um, saved the day because, of course, when you go to do um, a recording, um, all things happen like thunderstorms and the yes. internet goes down. And, um, uh, and oh, guys, come on. Did you hear it? So today's recording was um, a little bit of support in the background with a, a sit goose, a cranky bear, and the lovely Miss Annalisa who came to save the day. Miss Annalisa, say hi. Hey, everyone. <laughs> so, yay. Miss Annalisa, thank you for saving the day so we could be nerdy together. Of course. Awesome. Okay. All right. So I'm going to um, switch over to questions real quick. If you'll hold on one second. Sure. I have a solution to a problem that probably frustrates you because Lord knows it frustrates me on at least once or twice a week. So here's the solution. Are you trying to find a provider near you who routinely and frequently evaluates and treats pediatric feeding disorders? Well, Feeding Matters Provider Directory is the tool that you need. It's comprehensive, easy-to-use database of feeding centers and healthcare professionals. The provider directory allows you to search by location and filter by services offered, preferred specialists, and diagnosis. Start your search by visiting bit.ly backslash, I swear I'm going to get that thing right, uh, FM Provider Directory. And make sure that you submit to be listed too. All right. Enjoy, folks. That's a wrap, folks. Once again, thank you for listening to First Bite, fed, fun, and functional. I'm your humble but yet sassy host, Michelle Dawson, the All Things Peds SLP. This podcast is part of a course offered for continuing education through speechtherapypd.com. Please check out the website if you'd like to learn more about CEU opportunities for this episode. As well as the